Transfer Sports Network listeners, welcome to another episode of The Call Sheet. This is your host, Kevin Smith. Happy to be with you again for episode number 28 of our show. And I bring it to you from Ocean City, New Jersey, where I am a podcaster here at Fans First, writer for the Steel Curtain Network, head football coach of the Ocean City Red Raiders. As uh, we prepare to head into the playoffs here in South Jersey football and Exciting time of year for everybody, right? As we get we get now into the middle part of the NFL season, college football, you're starting to see the the bowls begin to shape up contenders for various bowls in the postseason play. The the rankings are starting to come out. I mean, the weather's getting a little bit cold now. I mean, this is really turning into my favorite time of year. As we just have an opportunity now to really get into the the meat of the football season. So happy to talk about that with everybody here on the call sheet. As we've done now for the past 15 or so episodes, we're going to talk about a player real quick who wore the number that parallels the episode of the show. And this is episode number 28. And man, this is one of my favorite guys to talk about. Number 28, Marshall Falk. It was a fascinating running back for the Indianapolis Colts and the Los Angeles Rams. Most fans probably best know him as the running back for the greatest show on turf, that Rams offense of the late 1990s, early 2000s, that won a Super Bowl, was in a second Super Bowl, set all time, all types of records. Marshall Falk's career is among the greatest in NFL history, seven-time Pro Bowler, three-time All-Pro was the NFL MVP in 2000. He was the Offensive Player of the Year three years in a row, 1999, 2000, and 2001. You know, and his accomplishments are are remarkable. Over, over 19,000 yards from scrimmage, that ranks fifth in NFL history, seventh in NFL history, and touchdowns, Hall of Famer. Awesome stuff from Marshall Falk. But the thing that's really remarkable about him and the, and the thing that makes him compelling to talk about right now, when I, when I pick these guys to talk about, uh, it's not just that they were great football players. I think I think the the individuals I try to select had a, had a unique contribution to the game or or have an interesting story attached to their life. And the thing with Marshall Falk is he was really the first true hybrid running back at a time when the spread offense was really beginning to take over the NFL. One of the things that made that Rams offense so compelling and so difficult to defend was they were one of the first 11 personnel offenses to spread the field with receivers and and make the defenses defend all 53 yards of the width of the field. They stretched you from sideline to sideline with great receivers like Torrey Holt and Isaac Bruce. And they were able to throw horizontally as well as they could throw the ball vertically. They they took teams that had big run-thumping inside linebackers, 240-pound downhill linebackers, and they made those guys play in space. And it really was kind of the beginning of the revolution offensively that is now just commonplace in the NFL. Again, we're talking about late 1990s, early 2000s. I mean, Mike Martz, was a bit of an innovator in that regard. And what the Rams were able to do, of course, is to replace the fullback or the tight end. They did go four wide sometimes in 10 personnel looks where they where they had no tight ends on the field. 
and exploit matchups, right? I mean, the NFL is a matchup league. If you can get your best guys against the other team's worst guys or or you can neutralize the other team's best guys with the way that you scheme the game, you're going to create an advantage. It's not like the lower levels of football. I coach at high school and there are plenty of matchups in high school where the talent disparity is simply so great that the schemes won't matter, that the team with the far better players is going to win no matter what. I mean, you know, it would, it would take them playing an atrocious football game for them to lose. At, at the college level, there's some of that. You, you, you see the matchups in the Big Ten, for example, between powerhouses like Ohio State and Michigan against some of the lower-level teams in the conference, Northwestern, Purdue. And every once in a while, the Purdue's of the conference pull a big upset. But for the most part, there's a lot of 38-6 games, 45-13 to 13 games, et cetera, because the matchups aren't, aren't as good from a talent perspective. But you get to the NFL, and that, and that talent gap shrinks. And now it becomes about schemes and matchups. And one of the things that was so compelling about those Rams teams is they had the guys to really play a new breed of football. And Marshall Falk was the perfect running back for those Mike Martz offenses because when you stretched the defense with formations, people talk about the spread offense, and I think there's a lot of misperception about what it is. There's a lot of people who think the spread offense is in and of itself a system, but really what the spread is, is simply a series of formations where personnel changes. Some of the bigger guys come off the field, fullbacks and tight ends, and they get replaced with receivers and shifty running backs. But teams are still running very similar concepts that that you can run from power formations, like the inside and outside zone plays. They, they're the staples of the run game or one back power which is often utilized out of the spread offense. And, and the thing that just makes it interesting, of course, is that by, by putting receivers in different positions all over the field, you create the perception of a unique style of play, as though this is an, an, an entirely new offense. When again, it's really just finding ways to hit on some of the core plays that have been run for decades in the NFL out of unique ways. And again, if you needed to, if you were going to stretch the field and you and you wanted to exploit slower linebackers or strong safeties, there was perhaps no better running back at the time than Marshall Falk, who was br- a brilliant receiver. I mentioned he had over nineteen thousand scrimmage, scrimmage yards in his career. Uh, over six thousand of those were receiving yards, and he was a matchup nightmare in space against linebackers. And what the Rams did is they just gave him a lot of option routes where he would just read the leverage of the linebacker and break opposite. And Kurt Warner, the quarterback, was brilliant at diagnosing that stuff and getting the ball out. Uh, And Marshall Falk just became almost unguardable to the point where you had to use bracket coverage on him uh, in the middle of the field. And if you bracket coverage Marshall Falk, now you're one-on-one on on the outside against the Torrey Holt or an Isaac Bruce. So it really was a brilliant offense, a brilliant scheme. And it was the beginning of a revolution that saw, you know, the – the, the game of football transition from, from a game that was vertically diagnosed or diagrammed, I should say, you know, you, you're going to try to knock your opponent off the ball and just get north-south to a game that now became more horizontal in nature. And that's just kind of built over the years to the point that now 
You see it, it commonplace at all levels. My son's JV team, he's 10 years old. His JV football team are running spread co- concepts. We're throwing bubble screens and running read options because it's, it's a, a devastating way, really, to force a defense to thin themselves out, stretch them sideline to sideline. So number 28, Marshall Falk, a, an innovative running back at a time when the game was changing and a Hall of Famer for great reason. Okay, so let's talk about uh, about week seven in the NFL. Week seven is now in the books. The league uh, had some interesting results over the weekend, and I'm going to focus on on one thing in particular, and that is scoring, because scoring has been down in the NFL for the better part of a season and a half now. Right there was a, there was a, a a lot of scoring in the league around 2018, 2019, 2020. Points per game were up over 23. Even, even over 24 a game in, in 2019. But they came down in 2021. And then in 2022, last season, they were down to about uh, just under 22 per game. And this year, that number's fallen again. As entering week seven, points per game were in the area of about 21.3, 21.5. And in the week six games, of the 14 games played in the NFL at the 28 teams who were in action, only two of those games saw the two teams score more than 40 combined points, and only two teams in the entire league scored more than 30 points in a game. That's really low. And I talked about it on the call sheet a little bit. I talked about it with Jeff Hartman on our show, The, the Whip Around. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, last weekend, this past weekend, week seven, the NFL offenses took off again. There were seven teams this past weekend who scored more than 30 points, and eighth team scored 29. And more than half of the games ended up with over 40 combined points. The overs were a good play if you were betting. And quick side note, speaking of betting, my man Pez, who has been a fixture on the call sheet and who has his own show now, uh, Pez's Picks, if you get a chance, check that out on FFSN. It shows up on Thursdays and Fridays uh, on our platform. Uh, But Pez made some great picks over, over the weekend, including calling the Vikings upset of the San Francisco 49ers. So I want to check his picks out, but but if you were betting the overs, you had a good weekend. So let's let's just talk real quick about why that was. Why why was the over or why were were, were points up in the NFL over this past weekend? And I really took a deep dive on this yesterday as I was doing some research for the show. And I'll be honest, I can't find a definitive reason. I think sometimes there are outliers, right? And and the question that we have to ask ourselves right now is. Was week seven the beginning of a trend, our offense is back, or was it an outlier where you just had scoring up for a weekend, but the norm, which is that defenses seem to be ahead right now, the offense is a little bit, the norm will return next weekend. Hard to answer that question. But for one weekend, scoring was up. And let's look at, look at, let's look at some of the games and draw some, some conclusions as to why. The, the Eagles put 30 up, 31 up on Miami. And that's not really that surprising when you consider that Miami's best cover corner, Xavier Howard, missed the game. He's one of the best cover corners in the NFL, one of the most aggressive press man corners in the NFL. And I was really looking forward to a Xavier Howard, A.J. Brown duel. 
But without Howard, the, the Dolphins didn't really have an answer for A.J. Brown. And Brown went off. 10 catches, 137 yards, and a touchdown. And so it's interesting when you look at the absence of Howard and the impact that had on Miami's offense and how Philly was able to exploit it. Speaking of exploiting, the Bears, the Bears, the suddenly hot, can I call it, can I say hot? Bears, they've won, they've won two out of their last three. Rang up 30 on the on the Las Vegas Raiders. And should that should we be surprised by that? Yes, we should be surprised that the Bears were competent on offense, especially behind rookie backup quarterback Tyson Bagent. Bagent? Bagent? I don't know, Jeff Hartman. Tell me how I pronounce his last name. But but they did so uh, at the expense of a bad Vegas run day. Vegas entered that game ranked 25th in the NFL against the run, and that number's going to fall because they surrendered 179 yards to the Bears. So the Bears found a formula that they wanted to use behind their rookie quarterback. They rallied behind it. And they were efficient on offense and put up 30 points. Baltimore rang up 38 on the Detroit Lions. Now, the result of that game was surprising. I think everybody believed that Detroit would play them a lot tougher. I talked on this show last week about how this would be the toughest game for Detroit. Not week one in Kansas City when they had all summer to prepare. But this one on a regular week where you got to go into M&T Bank Stadium in Baltimore, which is a very tough place to play against Lamar Jackson, who is one of the toughest quarterbacks in the league to prepare for. And I, I really believe that this was going to be a tough ask for the Lions, and it sure was, as they lost 38-6. to six. And the thing there is that just they didn't have an answer. Lamar Jackson was 21 out of 27 for 357 yards, three touchdowns, no interceptions. He is really starting to find his stride in Todd Munkin's offense. And Baltimore looks like they uh, could be the biggest challenger right now to the Kansas City Chiefs in the AFC. So not real shocking that they put up big points against Detroit. Speaking of Kansas City, definitely not shocking that they rang up 31 against the Chargers. We talk about matchups, how Philly was able to exploit Xavier Howard's absence. I mean, Patrick Mahomes against the Chargers, that is just a mismatch year in and year out. Mahomes with the win now ran his career record against the Chargers to 8-2. and two. He has 25 touchdowns and six just six interceptions in 10 career games against the Chargers. And he went off on Sunday, throwing for 424 yards and four touchdowns. So, so if you're, if you're keeping betting in the back of your mind, man, you maybe you want to think about that. Mahomes' success against the Chargers. That was just a matchup nightmare for LA. But the real outlier and the real game that is such a head scratcher is Cleveland 39, Indianapolis 38 in a game that was quarterbacked respectively by P.J. Walker of the Browns and Gardner Minshew of the Colts. Two backup quarterbacks combining for almost 80 total points. Indy rang up 456 total yards. And it's only the only because of the fact that they gave up the ball four times. An interception and three fumbles. Two of those fumbles by Minshew. Were the Browns able to score 39 points because Cleveland didn't exactly light it on fire on offense. They had, I would, I would, what I would characterize as a fairly ordinary day, but they were opportunistic and they took advantage and they scored on all of those uh, turnovers from the Colts. And so you get a 77 point game between those two backup quarterbacks and get, that's not going to happen on a weekly basis. So if we summarize, why was scoring up? Why, why were there so many points scored over this past weekend? Matchups had something to do with it. 
hot players like Lamar Jackson had something to do with it. Circumstances like Howard being out in Miami had something to do with it. And then you, you always get you always get the anomaly, man. You always get the game that's just kind of an outlier and, and the one-off, so to speak, which was Cleveland and Indy. And so I don't think that this is going to become a trend. I, I don't think that offenses are back. And I'll tell you why real quick before we go to break. The reason I think that the defenses will continue to, I don't want to say dominate, but get the better of offenses is because there's in this cat and mouse game between offensive and defensive coordinators, it feels as though the last big move has been made by the defense. If you go back a few years, go back to the era we were talking about when the spread offenses first, first came around. They, they just perplexed defenses for a while. And then defenses started to catch up with by using sub packages and, and, and putting nickel defenders on the field and dime defenders and, and taking a defensive lineman or a linebacker off. And then offenses countered that by going heavy on pre-snap motion and really being able to, to stretch defenses, get good matchups against some of these sub package defenders with shifts and motions. And, you know, defenses had to respond to that. The response that I think that defenses have come up with that are that are are causing offenses to struggle in the last couple of years has been coverage disguise. The coverage disguises that some of the defensive coordinators in the NFL are coming up with now are so brilliant. It's almost impossible to watch an NFL game and to look at a defensive shell, a secondary shell pre-snap and be able to predict what coverage they're going to play. I mean, it, you know, you, you can go back not that long ago and you would look at the way a defense lined up and you'd say, hey, that's cover two or that's cover three. But try doing that now. It's it's really hard. I mean, the, the way in which defense coordinators are using their safeties, dropping them, moving them, the way that they're seamlessly moving from cover two to cover three or cover three to cover two, the way that they're playing, you know, mix match coverages, half man, half zone, cover two to one side of the field, cover four to the other side of the field, and then just specialty coverages against three-by-one formations, trap coverages, cloud coverages, boxes. It's amazing how much you have to be able to diagnose as a quarterback. And there's a lot of young quarterbacks in the NFL right now who are simply being perplexed by these scheme disguises that defensive coordinators are using. So the defenses, I think, are ahead a little bit right now, the offenses. And the offenses will respond. And I, I don't know exactly how. That's what makes this league so compelling. But they'll respond. Uh, I don't know if the response will come immediately. It may take some time to figure it out. But for one week anyway, week seven, the offense has got the better of the defenses. So our hats off to the offensive coordinators from last week. Okay. On the other side of the break, I'm really excited. We're going to have a guest with us. It's going to be Dave Stefano from First and Skull, the uh, the Minnesota Vikings platform here on FFSN. And Dave's band, Dave's one of the great voices. You'll love his voice when you hear him talk uh, of, of our network and one of the great contributors. Dave designs all the logos that, that everybody uses. You can, you can see the call sheet logo that I use. Dave did that. He does some amazing work uh, with, with his graphics. And he's going to talk to us about the Minnesota Vikings who had a huge win of their own uh, on Monday Night Football, knocking off the San Francisco 49ers. And we're going to talk about how the Vikings have, have rebounded from their 0-3 start. And we're going to talk about the league in general, some of Dave's thoughts on the NFC as a whole. So you absolutely come on back. You won't want to miss that. 
Welcome back to the call sheet. Kevin Smith with you. And in part two of the show, we're going to have with us special guest, Dave Stefano from the First in Skull. Uh, I love that name, by the way. First in Skull, the First in Skull uh, Network and the Minnesota Vikings podcast platform here at FFSN. And one of the great contributors, one of the great voices on our network right now. Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It was, it was a wonderful weekend for both the Steelers and the Vikings. And I just, I'm still happy. Smile across my face all day today. There's nothing like a victory Tuesday. Yeah. yeah. Well, so the Steelers had a big win against the Rams, but I don't think any team had a bigger win this weekend. Well, Monday night, than the Vikings did knocking off the San Francisco 49ers who have, have certainly looked like one of the elite teams in the NFL so far. So Dave, tell us how, how they did it, man. How did, how did Minnesota pull off that upset? Well, uh, it's a combination of things as it usually is. One, we kept the turnovers down. Our Achilles heel so far this season has been the turnovers. We dropped the rock way too many times. We only had, uh, I think one fumble and one interception, but that they got made up for. We came up positive on the turnover sheet. But how we did it was multifaceted. Our defense under Brian Flores, who used to be the Steelers' defensive advisor last year, um, has just blo- is blossoming. They're getting it. We knew at the beginning of the season it takes a Flores defense a while to gel and get what he's selling. And they have done that, and they were just outstanding. We have a young cornerback named Cameron Bynum who had two interceptions and a forced fumble. He had a heck of a game last night. He was the one that sealed it for the Vikings. He was great. Daniil Hunter got another sack. The the whole team was humming. But they do that. One of the reasons why they do that is we blitz a tremendous amount. It's well over 50%. We're almost double what the rest of the league does. And when we we came into the game and we anticipated this because Brock Purdy, as good as he's been, and he has been a good quarterback, especially under the Shanahan system, he does what he's supposed to. We saw that he doesn't handle the blitz well, and most young quarterbacks don't handle the blitz well. So we were going to give it to him. And we did, and it flustered him. He made a few bad passes, a whole bunch of bad decisions, and it allowed us to stop them when we needed to stop them. Yeah, we got burned on a play, but we expected that. That's when CMC scored his touchdown. That was a beautiful execution on 49ers' part. It happens. And then you combine that with the offense. Kirk Cousins, as much as I love the man, he frust- has frustrated me in the past being our quarterback because he has some flaws. He's a very, very, very good quarterback. I don't call him elite, however, but he's very good. And if you put the right things around him, he can have a great game. But the best thing about Kirk Cousins or the worst thing, one of his flaws is he gets in his own head. Well, if he starts out well, he generally seems to get hyped and turns it on. And last night, even though that early pass, the early interception, which was taken out of Jordan Addison's hands, started as an interception, he didn't let that get him down. And he just fed on his 
on how Jordan Addison was playing, how TJ Hawkinson was playing, how the whole entire offense as a whole was playing. And he was just hitting pass after pass, making crucial decisions. And we had nice long drives where there's long drives all night. There was only eight, I think total eight drives amongst both teams the whole night. It was slow. I mean, it was slow plotting drives up and down the field, but he made them count. And it was just, it was fantastic. And then after the game, Justin Jefferson came out and hung some chains on him. So we got Kirko chains back, which is, there's nothing more deadly than Kirk when he's absolutely confident and, and facing any sort of adversity. He'll kill you if he gets to that way. And I think we passed that mark last night. That's why I am now excited for this season going into the game. Hey, we figured we we're going to lose because the San Francisco 49ers are one of those elite teams in the NFC and most likely heading back to the Super Bowl. But not after last night. It's all ours, baby. Hmm. Yeah, you know, you mentioned some interesting things there. One being Flores and his style. One of the things that when, when I was doing film breakdowns of him when he came to Pittsburgh and I was looking at the stuff he did in Miami, those blitzes are exotic. He runs some of those those what we used to call amoeba looks where you've got like seven guys kind of like milling around at the line of scrimmage. You don't know who's coming, who's backing off. That obviously puts a lot of pressure on a quarterback, especially a young quarterback, to be right and be right in a hurry. So so if if the Vikings are starting to to gel on defense, and now obviously with if you know if Cousins can play anywhere close to how he played last night, last night, 35 out of 45, 370 some yards. Uh, it looks like you know Minnesota may have obviously figured some things out. So is this is this is this how they've rebounded? They had that 0-3 start, and now they're they're kind of back in the mix. The NFC, you have some teams like Philly and San Francisco that still should be considered the favorites, but from there it looks like anybody's game is Minnesota in that mix, in your opinion. Yes, they are. And technically they control the NFC North now. It's within their power, even though we're two games back from the Detroit Lions. We have yet to play the Detroit Lions. We aren't scheduled to play them until week 16 and week 18. So the schedulers got that right on that one. So if we match records between now and then, it's all in the Minnesota Vikings' hands to win the division. Even if we don't win the divisions, I think we're, we secure a wild card spot and we're coming in hot. They have the ability. I preached it before the season. We have enough talent on both sides of the ball to be one of those teams that makes the playoffs. I believe we can. And if they keep this up, if they play like they did last night, yes, they will be contending. It shouldn't be a one and done like we've seen so many times in previous years. Hmm. What's Jefferson's prognosis? How, uh, how long is he out? How many, how many weeks do they have to go without him in the offense? Minimum four. There's two more to go. They originally said, you know, four because the IR rules. He's on IR. It's, they originally said he thinks it's four to six weeks because it's a, uh, what was it, a high ankle sprain? I think it was. But he's hopping around all over the place. He's running in the practice facilities. He's ready to go. But we want to, no, it was a hamstring. Um, one of our other players has a high ankle. There's 
he's ready to go, but we want to give him the chance to have that heal, which is only smart because we all know hamstrings can drag on, especially they're easier to re-aggravate and then they drag on week after week after week. And nobody is, you know, quite as good afterwards if they do that. So you want it to completely heal. I suspect we'll see him in a few weeks. Yeah. You know, it's unfortunate, but lower body injuries, the only cure really is time. With upper mm-hmm. body injuries, you can you can kind of, you know, tape them up, pat them up, grit it, and and play through the pain. But with lower body stuff, it's just, you know, that's your movement. And uh, and you can't – any core injuries, any lower body injuries, you got to let those things heal before guys can really get 100%. So this is interesting about the Vikings because one of the things that I – yeah, you know, everybody has friends who are overreactionary, and people people react to the to, to the last thing that happened as though it's the end all, be all. And I have I have plenty of friends like that that you know their team stinks one weekend and they're the greatest team ever the next. And and I always preach patience because it's a long season. The NFL season begins near Labor Day, and it doesn't end until near Valentine's Day. And it's an incredibly long season. And a lot can change. And you look at the Vikings. They were 0-3. And there was talk about them, you know, getting blown up, right? Hunter was going to be traded. Cousins was going to be traded. Uh, there were there were rumors that, you know, hey, maybe the Patriots, because Mac Jones is struggling, will we'll trade for, for Cousins, et cetera. And now here you and I are talking about them being a, a potential playoff team with the opportunity in kind of a wide-open NFC to – actually make some noise when the playoffs roll around. So what's the, what's the mood of the fan base in, in Minnesota? Or, or I, I don't, I don't know Minnesota as a region, so I don't know how, you know, I'm the, the city I'm closest to is Philly and Philly fans are, you know, they're nuts. The, the thing that happened 10 seconds ago is the most important thing in the world to Philly fans. So how is oh, it yeah, out in Minnesota? They're, and they're emotional and avid about that. Um, Vikings fans, we have been, because this season started out so poorly, and one of the main reasons was the turnovers I mentioned before. We're, we were just way lopsided in the turnover range, and then we looked a little out of sync on offense. We started out poorly. It was coming up into last night's game, and the Vikings were 2-5, and five, and we were thinking, well, if they lose... To the 49ers, that makes us two and six, and then they'll probably lose to the Packers, who aren't real good. That makes us two and seven. We should be sellers, right? And sell some of the assets we have to gain draft capital because we are going to be looking for our quarterback of the future. Kirk Cousins can't last forever. He is not Tom Brady. He's not going to play till he's 45. So you need to we need to find a the next. QB and the Vikings would love to find one of their own that becomes a franchise QB because we had spent forever since we've had one. Well, <clears throat> that all changed last night. Of course, we were going to get rid of everybody that wasn't going to be brought back next year was open for bids. Kirk Cousins on the final year of his contract. Daniel Hunter's on the final year of his contract. Marcus Davenport, who we signed this year, is on the final year of his contract. K.J. Osborne's on the final year of his contract. Ezra Cleveland, our left guard, the 10th-ranked left guard in the league, is on his final contract. 
or a year of his contract. There was all these guys, possibly Harrison Smith, hopefully future Hall of Famer Harrison Smith, all were going to be, have been thrown out there for ideas to be, sell them off, get draft picks, and let's go. Let's call this season a waste, and let's go on from here. Well, that all changed. And it changed because everybody now sees the path to win. And it's not that difficult. We, our remaining games are, we now drop to the 23rd ranked easiest schedule. Whereas before we were way up there uh, close to the top because we play all four of the championship teams from last year. We don't have a tough game, quote, an above 500 team until we play the Detroit Lions. Now, in between there, we do have Cincinnati further down the road, and they're going to be a tough game. But everybody's now seeing, oh, hold your horses. This may be one of those magical seasons. We just started out slow. And we're all hoping that. So we'll see. Now, we still keep it in mind, we're going to need a QB of the future. But let's ride this pony until it and see how far it'll go because this like you said the season is long and it's not over yet yes so if we if we pan back right if we kind of step back uh, away from the vikings a little bit and talk about the league in general it is a long season it is a unpredictable season and this this year has been especially so there have been a lot of upsets, uh, a lot of unpredictability. It's hard to find trends or patterns. I mean, what do you make of the year so far? I mean, do you think it's a parity issue? Is it a, a scheduling issue? Is it injuries? Is it officiating? I mean, there's these have all been major talking points so far early in the season. Uh, what do you attribute to the fact that this has been, I don't want to say an outlier of a season, but it's been a, an especially difficult one to try to figure out who's good, who's not good, and what's going to happen? Right. Well, how many undefeated teams do you see in the league? There's zero as of right now. And that's a little bit unusual, right? In the NFC, you've only got one with one loss, and that's the Philadelphia Eagles. And they are by far probably the best team in the NFC right now. There's, I know over on the AFC side, it's a similar situation. I think the Chiefs are leading it by the one game. Yep. Or with the one loss, but and there everybody's gotten a win, I think, except for what the Panthers. Correct. So yep. it's we're we're not getting what we expected. We expected from my point of view when we previewed the NFC, I expected the NFC South to be terrible. Well, they're not so terrible. Tampa Bay stepped up. Atlanta's won some football games. The Saints have won some football games. Now, are those are those teams good teams? Well, not necessarily, but do they have hope because they've won games? Hey, they've got more wins than we do. You know, they yes, they do have hope. This is and it's across the league, whether it be on the NFC or in the AFC, I'm seeing much of the same thing. That comes down, I do believe, to parity. Now, what causes where does parity come from? It comes from equal player talent across the board. Part of that is the draft and how the NFL works the draft. Um, it comes from a lot of uh, 
lot of the coaches being the same, they move team to team, right? Especially the younger coaches. That helps. You know what's going on. Everybody's using the same sources. Every team uses PFF, for an example, when it comes to analytics. As one of as one of their analytic sources, PFF knows a lot. So everybody's seeing a lot more than what they used to and gets to game plan off of that. So they're all got pretty much the same. And there's so little room for margin for difference. It takes the best teams to f- figure out what those differences are and to apply them and use them to a, their advantage. Now, injuries plague everybody, right? San Francisco last night, I was listening to their fans because I have friends over there that do what we do and podcast and blog and do videos and stuff. Their their fans were quite upset and they were blaming it on, well, they have injuries. Well, the Vikings have injuries. We have three starters out, including, you know, one of them being JJ. So everybody has to deal with that. Nobody is healthy at this time of year. Everybody, every team's dealing with dings and bings and all sorts of that. Boo-boos all over the place. There's unfortunate teams like the Jets. However, they're, <laughs> they're dealing with a lot more. And, you know, your heart goes out for them sometimes. But You could have stopped it. You could have stopped it. There's unfortunate teams like the Jets. You know I mean? <laughs> <laughs> but it is what it is. So it's going to be, it's going to be a storybook season for at least a couple teams. We're going to see teams rise. We're going to see teams fall like we do every year. At least a third of the playoff teams from the previous year fall out, and we get a third new ones. That's not going to change this year. We're going to do that again. And the fun is watching it on Sundays and Mondays and Thursdays to see how that story plays out. Yeah. All right, I'm going to get you out of here with this question. I'm going to put you on the spot, all right? I didn't I didn't prepare you. I didn't tell you that we would prepare this, <laughs> so uh, I'll put you on the spot here. Ready? Give me, uh, give me a prediction for for where you think this season winds up with the Vikings. Where where are they headed when it, when all is said and done? We look back on it. How will they have fared? As of right now, and you got to remember, I'm high from last night's yeah, win. That's true. Um, we're going to win the division. We may be a tie with uh, Detroit at that point in time, but we're going to win the division. And then we need to get over the hump of one and done in the playoffs. I predict that we at least make it to the division round. Hopefully we make it further than that. I mean, we have a saying here, win one before we die, because we have yet to ever do that. Um, so I believe we're gonna I believe we're gonna get into the playoffs and make a hopefully a deep run, and then we'll all be arguing should we extend Kirk Cousins or not at the end right. of the year. Right. I love it. I love the optimism. That's that's not a legal and binding prediction, by the way, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, usually mine are wrong. So Vikings fans can, you know, shoot me for saying it, but that's, uh, that, that's the, that's the hope we do have my, my brain tells me we have the talent. We have the skill. We have the coaches, you know, we're not perfect. Last night's game was not perfect. It showed room for improvement on both sides of the ball. But we are improving, and I can't, I can't really ask more of a team than that, you know. Whether it be the Minnesota Vikings, or if I was coaching old school, I used to coach Muscoota Little Indians. Um, there's, I used to coach at Muscoota High. There's, you ask that the kids improve. 
You ask that the players improve. You ask that the coaches improve. If your season goes and they are improving game to game, right, and the the season is an improvement over last year, and that's not necessarily in win totals. I think last year, you know, we won 13 games, all winning 11 one-score games, and it was a fluky year. I still think this year we'll probably lose a few more games, but we'll be double-digit wins. But I think we have a better team. Our team's improved. And as long as you're doing that and you're a fan of whatever team it is, that's a good thing. For sure. And that's the sign of good coaching. I'm a firm believer in that adage about, you know, you're you're getting better, you're getting worse, you're not staying the same. And it's certainly true, I believe, in football as things evolve on a week-to-week basis. And it's really what makes the NFL so compelling. So, Dave, I really appreciate your time, and uh, and I'm happy for the Vikings. They're always one of the teams in the NFC I enjoy watching. They always they remind me of the Steelers in many ways, and it was good to have you on again. Appreciate it, Dave. Well, thanks, Kevin. And hey, you know what we say over here: Skull Vikings. <laughs> All right, that'll, that'll that's a wrap, man. That's episode 28 of the Call Sheet. And we'll be back again in a week, and I'm sure we'll have some really great storylines and a tribute to a number 29 as we head into our 29th episode. So. For Dave Stefano, this is Kevin Smith. Have a great week, everybody.